All right, everybody, we're here again. I think this is now episode four of the BJJ 101 um, Storing Podcast. So um, we have a very special guest today, Mr. Matthew Wan. So um, just to start off, Matthew, obviously we've introduced ourselves before. This is Edward Diaz. He's a fourth degree Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. I'm Anton Manenko. I'm a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt at Gaha, um, Queensland, um, Brisbane. So um, one of, you do train here at Gaha, but we just want to first just start off introducing you so um matt just talk a little bit about yourself and your background and um also when and, and how you kind of got started in presenting jiu-jitsu sure yeah um so first of all anton thanks very much for having me it's a it's a real honor and pleasure to be here um talking to you today so yeah so matthew on um um I, I, I sort of my background is in behavioral analytics so um, it, was a, it was a roundabout way to come to behavioural analysis and, and that sort of thing. So it's been a lifelong journey. Um, that's been framed by, by military service and uh, my academic study. So my academic study is, is largely based around, interesting enough, aviation human factors. So I'm a postgraduate student who studied uh, the mechanics of human behaviour and how uh, our interactions with situational awareness have a causal effect in behaviour. Um, and that's, that's also been complemented by sort of other postgraduate study in special operations and um, irregular warfare. So yeah. that's the next level of, of human interaction and, and a very irregular way of looking at um, how the human machine interacts in an environment and can we use that to, to predict further actions, not just in a warfare sense, but in an everyday, in an everyday um, behavioural environment. Um, in terms of coming to, to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I came to it late in life, like you know. So I do train here, and um, I've come to, uh, to to BJJ later in life, and that was that was generated by by two factors. Um, one of them was an awareness of what I did in the in the conceptual space and the awareness space about being able to predict certain behaviours, and then really acknowledging that um, at a point of escalation where interpretation of information became either a kinetic effect or um, an irreversible effect. Um, I was really lacking in myself as a as a whole being, which really made uh, me think about: um, Can you have one without the other? Okay. So can you can you actually just be um, an interpretive mm. professional without without the ability to enact some sort of physicality, or can and are the two um, complementary? So that was a really um, interesting way of coming about that. Um, um, I was made acutely aware of that in a in a grappling session where I was completely flustered. I found that all the stuff that I, I dedicated my life to perfect had actually um, had, had, was not effective yeah. in the high stress environment. So even though I, I, I intuitively knew this, um, I couldn't actually um, I couldn't enact it. Okay. And that, that was really con- that's a really confronting thing when you yeah. um, when you do that. So I came to, to BJJ to. Um, to, to, to remedy that that situation and, and so far I'm on the stepping stones to doing that so so like um in whatever exercise let's say training thing that you were involved in um is there any other form of training like in terms of martial arts or self-defense that you had prior to this type of situation yeah so um as, as a youth I, I grew up in the in the um the 1980s 1990s hybrid americanized kickboxing world with satin pants and yeah. and all that good stuff so i also grew up in um in a, in a Muay Thai environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that really, what, what would be classified um, generically as the, as the McDojo, the McDojo world. So, yeah, yeah I, I did definitely have experience. Um, uh, 
which is interesting. We might talk about it later about how our systems. I know you and I have spoken about before, Edward, about um, that 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 westernised tick box of qualification versus proficiency. Yeah. And we don't go and revisit that. So that that was my background. Yeah. Um, my background is military, so I do have military training as well. Yeah. So, um, but but for the for the context of this, we're looking at it at a at a at an individual, not sort of that that system, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, like there's a few other things that we'll kind of touch on and stuff like that as well, but like just like kind of um, you know reengaging what, with, with what you just said then. So one of the main reasons was because of not being able to apply yep. some stuff that you you're, you know tick in the box of certain trainings in martial arts, but you found that it you know wasn't really helpful or didn't work in the way that you thought it, thought it would. But also one of the other things is because of your study. Um, you know, you wanted to see if, like, the, the, you know, the, what do you call, like, the theories is the same as the application and are they interchangeable? Is, like, what connection is there and stuff like that? Is that kind of where, where I'm getting at? Like, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. absolutely. So the conversion of, of the theoretical into the practical is is um, is um a key component of, yeah. of what we what we call mastery as a as a generalisation, okay, okay. right? So... Um, you, you can't you, the philosophy of it plus the the practicalities of it. Yeah. But in between those two, those two um, uh, domains is yeah. the is the how we do how do we interconnect yeah. those two portions. Yeah. And what I found with my own experience is that that middle portion was either completely absent or ineffective. Okay. So what I knew to be true, yeah. what I knew and trained to what I was yeah. to look at, there was a massive gap between my ability. Not just in my physicality, yeah. not in my just in my physiology, but my my mentality. How I couldn't I couldn't execute it, yeah. and that is a really confronting thing for, for most people. Yeah. Right? So yeah. knowing that this should work, and then combined, and then having the gap or the unaware gap, mm. what we call that unconscious incompetence. Or I don't know that I couldn't do it. Um, is a, is quite a confronting thing, and yeah. you can either take steps to to rectify that, or you. But- that's like a really interesting point, and I agree. Like everyone should, I th- like I think um, Eduardo has mentioned before about your book about that kind of idea of like um, once you become aware of something, most people generally take steps to kind of rectify whatever issue they are. Like you starting jujitsu, for example. But um, I think it's a really interesting point that you're talking about because I talk a lot about this to do with jujitsu and um, a little bit less theoretical but much more in application of jiu-jitsu like understanding the physical components and the movements and stuff like that but also understanding the theory behind like why jiu-jitsu works and everything as well and we've talked about this on other podcasts and things and and i think the biggest thing that people really struggle with is like you're saying finding that fusion of both of them together a lot of people probably are quite skilled or well versed in the movements like you might have been with the kickboxing or whatever but because they don't understand like the application process or they don't understand the theory to a level that's, um, I don't know how, how to ex- explain, but find that perfect balance uh, of how things work and what to do. And once you find that fusion, you find you just seem to have much more success with whatever you're doing, um, particularly with jiu-jitsu. And that's something that with all the stuff that we've started implementing at Gaha and stuff like that, particularly myself with all the classes, um, yeah, just found that most of the students are in, increasing in their skill level much better and much quicker just because you, we're trying to now balance out. It's not just a physical activity, 
but really trying to get people to understand what they're trying to do at the same time. So it's just interesting that like this is like a you know a rule that you can apply in so many different areas. You know what I mean? Whether it's like understanding human behavior or you know which is probably pretty much everything because we're human beings and that's how we operate but you can apply that idea to learning to cook properly or you can apply that idea to driving your car better or whatever yeah Yeah, absolutely yeah Yeah. Yeah. i think you can uh matt because i i train with you you know um and i i realize because you have some theories and you have a thought behind it on what actions you, you 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 need to take there's always um there's always thoughts there's always a strategy that you like to have and i think that 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 makes a a really bonus in in, uh, in having the theory a little bit of like an idea of in jiu-jitsu or anything in life yeah, yeah. you have a few concepts and, and good ideas that you need to put in a practical world it's not going to be a walk on the park But if you have something to go back to it and, you know, okay, well, this is what I'm trying. And I perceive that when I'm training with you, just trying to read your body language and the way you, I can see you thinking, I can see you have a strategy or something to rely on that you want to accomplish. And I think that makes it people get better a lot quicker and understand a lot quicker. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, when I'm up against you, I don't apply it very well. Right? <laughs> But um, I think you're absolutely right. So I am, I am going through a... I am trying to read your body language. I am trying to feel like the, the, the physical presence. So nonverbal communication is more than just what we can observe. It's also what we can what we can hear, those those exhalation sounds, especially in a close contact combat sport yeah. um, like jiu-jitsu, it's also feeling weight. And I think um, if we if we come back to to what you were talking about before, um, Anton, one of the things that changed my jiu-jitsu the most was going from the technical acquisition of Let's um, when you were teaching me uh, a, a, the different ways of doing a kimura, which was there's the technical aspect which you must have. And if we go back to the, the cooking analogy of the recipe, you need to know the recipe. Yeah. Um, but then what actually changed my perception and started to apply this in a more sort of acute sense was, and, and what you're picking up, um, Eduardo, is like the concept of when to apply that strategy correctly. Yeah. And we've talked about the adherence to the pure technical and then to the The, the perceptive pressures and and that actually makes that that um, whatever technique you are trying to do effective or ineffective. Are we trying to do stuff into a scenario that it doesn't fit because we're missing a key piece of data? Yeah. And we've spoken about this a lot. Yeah. Are you missing a key piece which will then make that what you are trying to achieve completely ineffective? So I, that fusion that you're talking about, I think that's where it really comes into play. Um, yeah, and and. Picking it up on that, that I think you, when you touch on concept is, is a key is a key factor to to rapid improvement or or mastery. For sure, I agree. So um, just like and like in this area that we're talking about, like reading body language and stuff, like Eduardo's um also you know spent some time reading your book. So if nobody's aware, Mr. Wine has a book available called Predicting Violence. Um, and there's a heap of information there. Eduardo spent some time going that through was, that. That was great. Uh, I was super happy to read the book. Uh, mm -hmm. It was amazing. Uh, I actually I gained some knowledge, um, and it was very interesting to understand, like have a better understanding. I think, you know, coming from Brazil, you were exposed to a lot of different types of violence, and uh, I could relate to myself at some points and uh, towards uh, the reading. Uh, and uh, there was very interesting points, you know, that I, I recommend. I think everyone should read the book. Is uh, Predicting Violence, 
how to interpret uh, no verbal cues from Matthew One, the author, and it was amazing. It was really good. I think anyone that's in, like just lives here, lives on the earth, should read this book. It's like violence. Um, you, you, if you have a bit more um, idea, you can spot it maybe coming, or you can be find yourself involved in the situation and you how to act or how to perceive that the, 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 the cues that it's coming and um, how to deal with it as well to have a best outcome out of it. That was amazing. It was a really good experience. Um, uh, what made you um, write this book, man? What, what brought you into this journey? And um, what, what is it, your expectation with the book as well? Okay, uh, so first of all, thanks very much. It's really humbling having people of your caliber and, and um, saying that it has got value. So that, that means a lot. So thank you. So in terms of, of using nonverbal communication, the prediction of violence and how I came to this, this um, to, to write the book is, is um, not just through my own experiences, but through study of, um, of the different sort of structures that causes error. So I came to it um, via stress mechanisms. So I was looking at different sorts of stress mechanisms and my own experience about how I could not um, implement the, the, the theoretical to the practical. And a lot of that goes, goes to um, how stress affects the body. Now, when we're experiencing stress and, and we look at the freeze, flight and fight responses, um, I, I started to look into the, in my aviation study about how these errors occur. So one of the key components that I found was that situational awareness, the, someone's ability to interact and interpret the environment that they're in was a major causal factor to how violent interactions not only occurred or the failure to to um, to become aware of, of a violent intent or, or a threat or a threat environment um, in, in, in the environment themselves. So the, the key for nonverbals is that um, it was actually spawned by a few conversations that I'd had is that not everyone wants to commit. If you go to any self-defense classes everywhere, 90% of those classes are dedicated to the actual physical interaction. So what happens after the point of incident? So if something occurs, you were grabbed, something happens, or, or physical interactions is now inevitable, and how do you deal with that, yeah. that from there? Um, looking, at, um, looking at the greater context, not everyone is going to be either capable of doing that. Um, not everyone wants to be um, physically interactive. Um, and, and even those people who are, not everyone is in, in, in that moment in time is capable of actually having a um, a physical interaction. Yeah. So as a father of, of two um, young daughters, if I'm out with them and the physical action um, occurs, I then have a, a multitude of different yeah. things in the environment that I now need to care about. Are there cars coming? Do I have to, to shield them? Are there multiple people coming at me? So um, the, the key point of, of them trying to get out of the book, uh, and I, I absolutely admit that, uh, that this is biased towards actual combatants, so people who are going into threat environments, yeah. but it has got a wide-ranging application. The same principles that we use um, for the book's application is the same principles you can use in a car park, the same principles you can use in a nightclub. Um, <laughs> it is being able to interpret the data being presented to you in a way that you can then filter out and start to assess um, whether there is a threat in the environment itself. So um, my aim for the book is to make people aware of, of their... their um, to grow their situational awareness. Um, I've written, I've tried to write it in a way and I use the, it's called the Micah Ensley model of situational awareness. Why did I choose that? Um, 
it's because it's a very simplistic three-step process. Um, and, and the framing of the entire book is, can you remember this under stress? Yeah. So there's a lot of theoretical work. There's a lot of great academic work and, and tomes of, of, of brilliant, brilliant um, philosophy and psychology. Where it falls down is when you're injected into acute stress. And how does that acute stress reaction actually affect your ability to have cognition of your environment and then being able to enact the theory to the physical? Yeah. Now, that's a key component. Um, lots of scholars talk about what's called the limbic break. Um, so when you become so overwhelmed with stress, you are no longer taking in um, cognitive information. Yeah. So, uh, and you would have seen it, you've even seen, probably seen it with me um, in, the, in the heights of a, of a free roll or yeah, in a yeah, competition. Yeah, for sure. Hey, stop doing that. And I'll look at you and go, yeah, no worries, I'll stop doing that. And then I continue to do that. Yeah. And you go, what? Like, I'm, I'm actually hearing what you're saying. Yeah. But more than likely, that, that level of stress is now preventing that cognitive capacity okay. to translate through the limbic system okay. and into a physical reaction. So you might consciously take in information, you just can't act on it sometimes. Is that kind of like the base level of what you're Yeah, absolutely. Say, right? So you'll get to a certain level of stress where you can no longer perceive new data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's one of, the, one of the things that we've definitely spoken to about is people who fail to perceive the change in body weight the fa- the, yeah, yeah, in, in a BJJ yeah. contest, yeah. right? You're no longer in that situation where that particular move is going to work because you are then in a stressed environment. You just go, I just got to make it work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You fail to perceive. Through. You fail to perceive that that really unique change. Yeah. So, which is I think key. And <clears throat> if we can if we can master that, yeah. and hopefully the book gives you some tools to start that that journey of mastery. Um, you can either make yourself um, less vulnerable to attack. Yeah. Um, and there's some other complicating factors as well. The way that we operate in a modern connected environment yeah. where we we put ourselves in a in a probably unconsciously into a state where we can't we can't perceive data we can't perceive the environment and it makes your susceptibility to surprise um that much more severe and the biggest one is to be surprised you mean like because you'd be distracted with is that what you're saying like Absolutely. Like you'd be on your phone here and then suddenly you're not seeing what's happening around you, for example, and then suddenly you're going to yeah. get caught. Yeah. Because when I was young, that I had many experiences in Brazil, but you're talking about experience and uh, be able to identify the surroundings. Like, um, let's say from probably 12 years old, I start to get in buses by myself or with yeah. friends, like public buses, right? There's a lot of robbery in public buses in Brazil, right? Two guys come to the front, one guy to the back, someone pulls a knife or a gun, they rob everyone on the bus. So the amount of time, so you basically, you get the bus scanning for everyone that is in the bus or then can come on the bus. The amount of times that I left the bus just because I thought it could happen, right? Yeah, yeah. It's just so, it, it's, um, I think the um, having the combative background uh, gives you a lot more experience, exposure to be able to come up with a book. I don't think that um, any uh, civilian, like a very normal civilian in a normal, beautiful, perfect environment will have the same amount of knowledge that you brought to the book, I think, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I, I sort of go by this premise that hard lessons, uh, sorry, hard lessons can't be learned in utopias. Yeah. <laughs> so if everything's running really smoothly and you're comfortable, you're probably not having to adapt very much to your environment. Yeah. And what you described in your experience in Brazil is absolute. Um, a lot of people already have these skills intuitively. Um, 
what I'm hoping to do is, under, is, is to explain the mechanic of why those things are important to have um, and that sort of thing. So scanning the buses and that sort of thing in the modern environment um, where, where I'm seeing patterns of comfort through distraction. Yeah. So now when people are, are experiencing an uncomfortable silence, um, when they're getting nervous, um, they'll put their headphones in okay. and their hand, heads locked to screens. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that never happened before because yeah. we had newspapers and books and all yeah. sorts of things. That, it's just a more common avenue now to kind of withdraw. Yeah, it's way. more encompassing, yeah. right? So yeah. before when you, when you had a newspaper or a book or you were in a huddle with friends, there was still that that multi-dimensional sound and, and stimulus hitting yeah. you. Now you can completely remove completely yourself, remove yourself yeah. right? Yeah. I think Jiu-Jitsu gives a lot of calm because of such a close uh, interaction you have. It just gives you more calm in a moment. You know what I mean? And if you, you're training, you're under stress. You know what I mean? There's yeah. someone trying to choke you, basically, yeah. or, or, you know, break your arm, potentially. So if you take that and go to the street, it just brings you that, like, you, you're more... Uh, calm to deal you know what i mean with any you can see better you can spot better i, I felt that jiu-jitsu brought that to my life i just feel maybe confidence i guess helped a lot yeah. you're just confident to like okay if there is a problem i'm gonna try to manage but you're able to be more aware you know of your space and everything yeah well i think yeah. you're basically training the same kind of ideas like in jiu-jitsu so like the better you get at jiu-jitsu the better you get at making decisions under stress and not being affected by those stress responses and uh, your limbic system being affected and stuff like that follow procedures yeah, yeah technical following approach. procedures and you know the procedure might be assessing the situation and all the different threats whereas we're assessing what submission attacks are coming and how you're going to address the person's posture and how you're going to address their weight and whatever. We're just looking at it in a different way. But like, you know, Matt's saying, like, you can apply the understanding or the theory of this book in all different situations because regardless of what it is, whether it was cooking, you have to be aware that, you know, what the temperature's on in, in the oven no, and, and how quickly you have oven. to yeah. take it out and what temperature <laughs> has to reach when you do this exactly. So it's just um, yeah, super interesting, man. Um, Eduardo also talked about there was like a, a lot of stuff in there that had to do with like negative emotions or emotions in general, whether you believe they're negative or not, um, you know, about fear and anxiety and all these types of things. And um, th does the book also include different strategies on how to deal with those kind of situations? Or Yeah, so the main, the main strategy in the book is, is by expanding awareness. Yeah. Um, now, um, I, I break it down so it's... It's not unique to me. These are, are well-founded sort of theories. Yeah, yeah. So fear, anxiety, and worry are really interesting factors. Yeah. Um, I'll probably leave anxiety out because there's a, there's a whole there's a whole another avenue to anxiety, which is there's some um, probably some better people to explain that. But I do break that down into the um, to summarise what is out there academically about anxiety and, and its effects. So fear, real fear, is energising. So that's the key, the key difference. But we sort of grab all these three concepts and go, you're afraid, yeah, okay. right? Um, fear, fear is a, a real response that is energizing to the system. It, it activates yeah. certain, certain pathways in your body that releases adrenaline and you feel like you're this guttural feeling, I need to move now yeah. and I need to enact. Um, that's real fear and that's a really uh, a powerful way to stay alive and survive. So yeah. it's a survival mechanism. Anxiety is quite different because it brings in a whole lot of other factors, but worry is the one that um, that is interesting to me okay. because a lot of people worry mm. um, 
But the premise of worry is that it's something that causes concern, but you actually have no intention of, of doing anything about it. Okay. So that's the way it's kind of summarized in a couple of different ways. And, and as an example of that is um, when I'm watching my kids um, um, on a trampoline with no barrier or, yeah. or a monkey buzz, yeah. I worry about them getting injury. But you're not going to put a barrier up. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. But I'm not going to do anything about yeah. that because I want them to explore and I want them to, to make them their own explorer sort of, sort of behaviors, right? So I worry about their injury, but I actually don't plan to do anything about that. A lot of people sit in this worry where I'm worried that this might happen, but they're actually not prepared to do anything about it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a, a key difference between people who think they're afraid and then the actual real fear. Yeah. Um, they know there's, there's something they could do, but they're actually not prepared to do it. So we do break down that um, in, in the book itself. And, and there are some some strategies in there that you can, you can start to do. And one of them is, um, which is really hard to do at the first part, is, is self-assessment. Like, what am I good at? Yeah. What am I not good at? And, and really developing that ability to, to look yourself in the mirror and go, hey, I'm, like, like I had to do, yeah. hey, I'm really good at the theory, but I suck at this physical application. And, and what is it, that, what is it that, um, that's missing in that, in that chain? Now, I was probably worried about that before, and I never prepared to, to bridge that gap between okay. becoming physically physically mastering the skill until something happened where exactly. it forced you to. Okay, yeah. Yeah. that's really interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I think a lot of people should kind of have a think about and assess, like you're talking about, um, because I think, like you're saying, in in every aspect of your life, if you if you apply this concept, there's always things that you would like to change that you don't just because you're like ah, I, I'm worried about this not working out or whatever, but. I'm not willing to do anything about it. It's very interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we can even go back to, to fitness education. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm, I'm worried that I'm becoming more unhealthy, but I'm not prepared to change my diet or my exercise regime. Yeah. Um, I'm worried that I'm falling behind at uni, but you've never dedicated that. You never intend to dedicate yeah, that time, time to, to study. more study and that yeah. sort of stuff. My jiu-jitsu is not getting any improvement. Do you find still... that it takes like this massive thing like you're talking about to happen for people to actually take that step where it turns into fear or like... Is that generally like the the outcome of that kind of pathway or it's up to interpretation? I don't know. It, it's definitely up to interpretation. I think individuals come at that in a different way. Yeah. Um, I would hope that the majority of people don't have to experience the transition from worry to true fear Okay. to understand that, that there's something that needs to happen, whether that be um, a, a health issue, right? yeah. a, a mental health yeah. breakdown or a physical attack. I would hope that that wouldn't happen there. Um, so there's always an opportunity to do that and, and potentially, potentially sort of a bit of self-reflection or, or just seeing, you know, there's, there's stuff about the environment that I really don't understand can trigger that as well. Don't you think that like, like you said, the, the worry, it's something that you just think, but you're not going to act upon. There's no, um, real, um, it's not going to have any real action for you to deal with, but, um, if you arrange, for example, I'll give you an example here. If you have a bill that you want to pay, you need to pay tomorrow, um, and you're just going to be worried, I'll have to pay that bill tomorrow, I have to pay that bill tomorrow. But if you go now and you act and think, okay, I'm going to pay this, this bill tomorrow, I'm going to put here uh, this money aside and organize here or make the payment, like just having one action, that will take the worry away like small steps, you know what I mean? Even if you're playing to pay in installments, yeah. I found that like people want to like, oh, I 
I want to lose weight, for example. I want to get good at jiu-jitsu. They think it's going to happen in three days. You know, yeah, it doesn't yeah, happen. Yeah. And then they get yeah. they get sad. But And that's probably one of the reasons that they never even started, you know. But if they just go, I want to lose weight. Okay, well, we're going to get the bike today. Go for a bike ride. Mm. Okay, that's done. Great. Stretch. Next time. So th- I think that to also trying to um, act a little bit towards the where you had... Um, just if you have a, like something personal, you know what I mean? Like, like oh, I'm worried about this and you can act upon, like just do one step at a time. I think it's very helpful to take away that, that maybe energy that you have thinking like, oh, this, oh my God, what am I going to do? No, you can do it. Here, there you go. Start it like this. You have a plan. That's fine. Mm. Yeah, like absolutely. So that's absolutely true. So a small plan, a small step towards a bigger goal is better than no plan at all, right? Or just a concept yeah. of a plan. So if you're worried about stuff, it means it's, it's sitting in the back of your head, right? You may yeah. be able to suppress it for a little bit, but it's still taking still up energy and neurons yeah. and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah, absolutely, it's compounding. It's absolutely compounding. So um, by making that small thing or just getting it done and over with or making a plan or, or putting in these small steps, um, you, you free up your ability to for, for clarity because it's you just keep pushing stuff into your brain, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, kind of like moving on to a different subject. Sure. Like, um, uh, so as we're all aware, like you have, you, you both your daughters train here at Gaha as well um, in the kids, in the junior program. Um, we just wanted to kind of like um, talk to you about your point of view on jujitsu and particularly to do with, you know, kids and, and like implementing um, you know, the moral stuff they can learn or all the benefits they can get out of kind of learning jiu-jitsu or what, what's your idea on martial arts training in general for people and how it could be beneficial or the, the pros and cons of that, but particularly centered around, like, kids and teens and stuff like that. Also, Matt, because in your book you mentioned that um, there's a lot of violence um, towards um, women, yep. okay, and, 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 and males as well, like, in, in through their older life, I think it was, like, one out of six Correct. Yeah. For women and one in sixteen for for males, so that's a massive number, right? And uh, and I always said, I always I always made that comment. Uh, if I always had, if I ever had a daughter, I think I probably told you that before. Mm. I would I would like her to train jujitsu more than if I had a boy. So yeah, just following up on what Anthony's saying, like, how, what are your think thoughts about that? Sure. So. Um... <coughs> That, that's a that's a really good question, right? Um, it's a really good question with multiple outcomes. Yeah, yeah. Because there's there's definitely proven key benefits of of training anything physical, um, body confidence, body awareness, um, discipline, um, teamwork. These are all great interpersonal stuff you can yeah. develop for for yourself, for your character, yeah. for your character, right? So it's character building. It's it's no longer just about you um, um, and you have a team around you, but you're also in a learning environment. You're expanding. You're you're doing new things. Why did I sort of come to jujitsu? Um, and that's a that's a twofold answer as well. Um, on the personal development side, I think jujitsu is fantastic because it it provides a system um, in a pressure tested environment. Like rolling is a pressure test yeah. environment. Um, because there are outcomes, you brought it before, like they're trying to break your arm, they're trying to choke you. And I think one of the one of the really good benefits about jujitsu is that um, it teaches that very small changes done consistently can actually create a major effect. 
Yeah. Um, and even in my, even still in my own level, um, when I find myself in a bad position, I concentrate on, and I, I tell the, the girls, if I just concentrate, just do that one little thing. Mm-hmm. I just got to get my elbow to the mat. And then that creates a cascade of reactions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How that translates into life is that it, you've sort of ingrained this, this thinking system that if I can just change one little thing, that's going to lead to another thing yeah. and that's going to lead to another thing. Mm-hmm. And that's been reflected in, in both academia and, and that's been reflected in, in sports psychology. It's been reflected in motivational speakers. You don't need to change the world in a flash. Yeah. You just need to change that one little step. So from what I've seen with um, their confidence, their development, is, it, it's fantastic. And I think that's something that's unique to jiu-jitsu. Um, that's the, the first part. The second part is, is exactly what we were talking about and what you were talking about with your own thoughts on having a daughter, right? So when you analyse intimate violent attacks, when you look at um, the way that violence is persecuted on people, yeah. very rarely is it the enter the dragon model. Yeah. You know what I mean? Do you know what I mean by that? Like Bruce Lee is in the middle and you have everyone around taking turns yeah. and he's phenomenally doing these, these high action kicks, yeah. right? So that's fantastic, but does that translate into reality? And the answer is unfortunately not. Um, Attacks, especially on young children, are persecuted from a in-close or what we call as a close proximity attack. Um, real predatory behaviour is not what we call as um, it's not what we call telegraph. So um, no one's yelling, "I'm going to go take that kid," or "I'm yeah. going to go attack you." They will work out a way, like a like a lion stalks its prey to to get close. Now, what's the greatest benefit? And unfortunately, that also means that. When the attack happens, it's usually body-on-body contact. It's a grab and a snatch with a with a forcible maneuver, um, and what, what what and that's what jujitsu is, right? Yeah. So jujitsu is starting from a a close proximity. Um, it usually reaches with a grab or a or a or a um, a closing of distance, and then a full body contact of some of some course. The and um, and having the ability, having the confidence and the, school, uh, the skills and the tools to make yourself more survivable in that context, I think, is, is fundamental. And, I, and that's what definitely drew me in the security space. But that was so much complemented by the mental development space that I thought it was a brilliant fit. And overarching all that is, is that both the girls love it. They love <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. They love being in it. Um, it's also fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. brilliant. It's brilliant fun, right? So it's, it's a really engaging environment. And, and without that, without that way, without that engagement, the rest really doesn't mean anything because you don't have buy-in, you don't have yeah. this this commitment to the process. And yeah. and I think that's what um, what I've especially in this club, especially is that is that um, that buy-in, the way that the, the information is presented is is what's made that journey so successful for them. Definitely, awesome. definitely. Yeah. So that's a bit of a three three prong approach. To yeah, it. Like, yeah. it is a multi-dimensional question, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, super interesting point of view. I, I agree as well. I'm just taking a lot of information. It's super nice to, to hear you talk, talking right now, Matt. Um, look, in, more specific towards teens as well. Um, we get a lot of parents super concerned and they bring their teens here. Um, there is a lot of... Um, there's a lot of uh, teens that are just super exposed to social media like and and they don't have uh, formed values and formed um, personalities yet, and they're yeah. in the process. And and they, uh, jujitsu uh, um, 
what do you think it's so important for teenagers? I started when I was a teenager, started judo when I was five, but jiu-jitsu probably about my 11, 12, more serious at 14. Yeah. Uh, and that was crucial in my life, crucial jiu-jitsu, because there were other influences. There were influences of like drugs, gangs, really close to me. Like I could definitely go on to one of these directions. Not because I didn't have the values at home. I had great values at home, but just because of the they don't know or I want to look good or some sort of the teenagers have this attraction to belong, I think, to something bigger than themselves. And jiu-jitsu brought me into the, the environment with like good people, uh, different ages, uh, great values, very respectful manners uh, that boy, I'm so thankful um, that I went to this, I had the opportunity to actually and, and decided to go that way. But definitely be around these people made me go that way. You know, be around good people brought me, show me a lot easier than if I had to discover everything on my own, you know? Sure, sure. And I'll, I'll, caveat, I'll caveat my final comments by saying that I'm not a psychologist, but I'll talk to it about a behavioral dynamic sort of perspective and behavior analytics perspective. So for teens, the, the, the general consensus is, um, depending on who you read, is that as a teenager, you're, the way that you form your self-view is interlinked with how, how those around you see you. Okay. Um, in, a, in its really broad sort of spectrum is that um, when you ask, if I was to ask you, Eduardo, who are you? Or Anton, who are you? You would give me a list of things that you find personally important to you. What are my intrinsic values? What have I formulated? And that's through life experience and, and through interpersonal development, however that development may occur. Um, what we found and increasingly and we, we talk about it in the book is that a teenager, when we look at the different mechanisms of social control, is in their, in their development pathway, it's about forming their ability to fit into a society, into those small social groups. So there's a, a leaning towards them going, well, I, my self-value is what you guys think of me. Okay. So what you think of me is actually more important than what I think of me. It's a dangerous kind of place to be in. Yeah, it's yeah. a dangerous spot to be in, right? So, so what does what does joining a jiu-jitsu club do? Um, and what's the mechanics? And it's not just jiu-jitsu. There's obviously ballet schools and, and whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. And there's two, again, this is a multi-prong approach. First of all, if you're here training jiu-jitsu, you've, you've usually got a shared mentality. Yeah. There's a shared... Um, dedication to learning and development and that's an important thing the the will to improve right otherwise they quit right yeah because no one wants to come and just be beaten every single week yeah, right yeah. that you want to improve that's you why you come that issue yeah, yeah. to keep turning up yeah exactly yeah. and there's a, that's a shared mentality then you have the enforceable discipline from the instructors there's a set of rules this is your left of arc this is your right of arc and if you operate in between that there's um, reciprocal respect and learning and and all these other great things. Mm-hmm. The club, the way the club is set up is just as important to what happens inside the club. Yeah. Um, you can, because you, there's clubs all around, right? There's different clubs that are exclusionary that if you're not a top performer, they can get the hell out, you know, yeah. you're not doing this right. Um, you're never going to be this. Um, in my experience in, in, in jujitsu, is that it's a very inclusive environment, right? It's a great environment. Mm-hmm. Um it's because, it's, and one of those aspects may be because it's so humbling. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I yeah. agree with that 100%. Yeah. That would differ jiu-jitsu from majority of other martial arts. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I find it to be an exceedingly humbling sport because there's really, there's no place to hide. Yeah, absolutely. There's no place to hide. You can make all the excuses in the world, right? And we've all heard yeah. some crackers, but yeah. at the end of the day, I, I'm, I, I can't hide. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and because of that, I think that comes with a certain level. Maybe it's enforced. Maybe it's a learned humility. Yes. Um, a bit of both, maybe. Yeah. Particularly with the kids, a bit of both. A bit of both, <laughs> yeah. So, um, and I think that's, um, that's a really unique mix. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's one of the biggest advantages of it. Yeah, no, I yeah. think that's a really good insight into that. So. Positive role models as well, like role yes. models. Yes, yes. As in life is so busy nowadays, parents have to work, you know, to, you know, a lot of hours away plus, you know, technology. So... Sometimes they're just going to have the parents, which is one of the toughest jobs in the world, in my opinion, to have to educate and, and you know, and try to give values and try to be a parent, you know, and nice, you know, and, and it's such a difficult and conflicting job. Uh, but having a role model outside of the family as well that will give you guidance like this. Many times we had conversations with the kids here, you know, and we if they... And they normally, normally this conversation, they really help, you know what I mean? And the kid become like fantastic, um, fantastic uh, teenagers, actually. I had one one day that was actually um, really touching. I graded him because in my, when I was a teenager, like I used to consider my coach like a father, second figure, second father, yeah? But so present, if you're on the mat all the time, you kind of like see whatever he's saying, you're following and um, this kid came to me and after grading, he said, in front of his mom, he finished the grading, he said, you know what? You're my second father. That like, you know, it's exactly the same what I used to think. I was like, well, this is my job here, right? He had done exactly the way I was brought up, you know? So that's the, the role model yeah. thing, you know? And now he's great. Gave me a lot of hard time. He <laughs> was a lot of hard time. And now he's an amazing, amazing, amazing kid, like yeah. teenager. Yeah. So, and this is an interesting mechanic, right? Um, especially with the young kids, because yeah. there's one thing that they don't understand, which is the economy of, of um, goods and services. Yeah. So what coaches do, not just BJJ coaches, but coaches everywhere, and what I think a lot of kids perceive is they're intrinsically important because you're donating something that they can't have, which is time. So you're dedicating time to them. And I think having parents who watch their kids undistracted um, when they look over, they feel like they're being invested into. Um, that's that's my perception of it. Like, yeah. and that's sort of like coming up in like sort of a lot of parenting sort of philosophy and that sort of stuff is dedicated time. And you guys, as coaches, give these kids dedicated time, and that's so invaluable for them. Yeah. They feel important. You're, you're building that self esteem up, and yeah, I think it's a yeah precious. Think, yeah, I think yeah, absolutely, it's definitely precious to them. Yeah, yeah, awesome, awesome. Yeah, yeah so. Um, there's a heap of like philosophical stuff and all this type of thing. We also um, like kind of moving on as well. We just want, you helped us a lot um, as everyone was going through um, this kind of COVID experience and like it's affected everyone across the world and all this type of thing. But um, from you know helping Eduardo and things like that, always very grateful and thankful. So thank you so much for that. But also just wanted to talk a little bit of how closely you were working, you know, through your own work. Um, you know, with the Australian government and stuff like that and, and kind of, can you just kind of explain a little bit of um, your role in that and we can talk a little bit about how you helped us so much here as well with the jiu-jitsu aspect of it. Yeah, sure. So from an um, from a sort of academic modelling perspective, COVID 
COVID's a really interesting beast. Mm-hmm. COVID's a very interesting sort of um, um, thing to work on for those who who are in, who are not in the um, uh, epidemiology in, in sphere and, and communicable yeah. diseases design because it was so wide ranging and, and and impactful, right? Yeah. Um, so COVID was really interesting. So uh, one of the things that we started to was play around with different models and that sort of stuff, especially through think tanks and 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 trying to create advisory panels and that sort of thing about why we think and in behavioural pieces, why were we seeing different behaviours that we did? Um, and one of the things that um, that I was particularly interested in and worked on was was the behavioural dynamics of why we saw these surge shoppings and and what are some of the causal factors that may have may have um, contributed to that. Mm. Um, so we talk about this thing called agency. So why did COVID affect us in no other way? And then we'll I'll, I'll sort of come back to why did Australia seem to do so well? Yeah. Um, so one of the things with any biological contagion is it takes away your your what we call your agency. Um, it's the same. Di- so agency is really how can I as a human or how can I as, an, as a rational being start to negotiate my fate? Um, <clears throat> in another context is uh, why are people so happy to be to be um, incapacitated with it through alcohol. Um, alcohol is a good one, right? So you're mm. in the middle of a city, you've just had a big party. Mm. Cities are dangerous, inherently dangerous. Yeah. Um, but you're happy to be in that sort of state in the middle of a city, but you won't go waist deep water into it. You won't get into waist deep water at the beach because you're so afraid of sharks, right? Yeah. That's an interesting concept. Yeah. Um, and it goes to agency because a shark doesn't care, right? Um, it doesn't care. You're just a, like a, a tasty treat, right? Yeah. Um, but in the city... You feel that as a rational agent, if just say you were my aggressor, I still have this deep-seated psychology that I can somehow negotiate my fate. Yeah, right? yeah, so I still yeah. retain my agency. Yeah. With, bi- with, with viruses and diseases and this sort of stuff, it strips us of our agency. Yeah. It doesn't, COVID didn't care whether you were rich or whether you were poor or, or where you came from, who you prayed to, mm. who you loved, right? It was just a virus. Um, so stripping away agencies started, in, in my opinion, started to affect the way that people maintain control of their environment. Yeah. Um, was that by hoarding resources? Was that by denial and all these other sorts of things? So um, so looking at messaging, and so why was Australia, so to sort of apply that to our, to our context, why was Australia so successful? Um, one of the things that um, I was working on is like, we're, we're quite used to in Australia having pretty large-scale emergencies, yeah, yeah, right? Sure. So yeah. staying in homes and, and having that scent, that, that um, state of emergency yeah. is not a foreign concept. When you mean like bushfires? Bush yeah, fires, yeah. yeah so, fires, so when we everything. when you impose these these existential threats, um, it, like a fire takes away your agency too, right? Because it doesn't really care. Yeah. It's just going to burn. You can't negotiate um, with the flames. Yeah, or the flood, right? You yeah. can't negotiate, hey, stop, hey, this is my house, like... Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm. I believe the Lord. I'm this. So please don't flood me. It's not going to work. It's yeah. going to happen anyway. Yeah. Um, so Australia's no, as a as a holistic community, is not is not really. That's not foreign to us. Yeah. So I think the the, the ability for the population to adapt is a lot higher than than somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and and because we are used to these sorts of existential threats all the time, we have a greater sense of community. Um, so what you saw is. Is maybe not at first, but in a in a really general sense, the community was quite accepting to help each other. Yeah. Well, um, I, I 
I thought it was one of the most beautiful things I ever seen in my entire life, how the community came together here. Um, but I received a letter from my neighbor, she's 75, asking she, if she can make shopping for me if I get COVID. Like, I mean, this is unbelievable, you know, like everyone came together um, in every single way. Like you said, like, it was a time where everyone, regardless what your job is or, you know, profession, like everyone just saw the, the importance of helping each other. And, you know, the, the people from the checkout and check out in the supermarket, you know, without them, we couldn't buy food, period, you know? Yeah, absolutely, right? So um, it was amazing. It'd be, it's in, and it's also interesting to look at other cities that haven't faced these big threats and how they reacted in response as well. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't as community orientated. Um, they were more isolationist. So you, you saw some different behaviours sort of pop up, more isolationist behaviours. However, again, in the, in the big caveat of the world is, um, I think it also drove home how lucky we are in Australia. Yeah, sure. um, we don't have those those really high density living capacities that that, yeah. that really communicated. This is very easy for us in a generalist sense to self isolate. Like yeah. if you've got a backyard, you've got that space. That's a really that's a really lucky thing. So mm-hmm. um, what we saw as an outcome of that is I think a a a driving to the way that we reassess quality of life. Right, the, the, we've had to reassess the way that we live. Um, there was a real drive in metro areas to, yeah, the, the, one of the measures of success was eating out and not having to have full kitchens and, and during the COVID crisis where we had to become more self-sufficient. Um, I, think, I think I saw in the data sets that, that I had access to um, a, a drive to self-sufficiency, yeah. cooking. Like cooking at one, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exploring new things, the return to some of those life-sustaining skills yeah. that... Um, that um, that Western sort of capitalist indulgency has sort of said, well, that's not important. Yeah. And it's cycled back to say that we are. Yeah. Um, although key community, I think um, in the data, we saw very similar data sets that we see in floods and fires that we, that we saw in COVID. So I think there's, a, there's an undercurrent of, of, of cultural acceptance of that this stuff's going to happen and the way to move forward through that is through community engagement. Um, because I think... A lot of people forget that 2020 was in 2019 was not a great year for Australia, yeah. um, not just because of COVID, but we'd recently come out of um, horrendous bushfires, yeah. and none of that stopped, right? So we sort of just rolled with the punches. So I think that was a key, um, that was key to the to the, the measure of success, definitely, definitely. Yeah, and and like we're also very grateful on like a personal level. You helped us a lot with um you know organising all the stuff so we could open when we were able to and um, implementing all the procedures we had to so that we could do um you know classes um without contact and doing drill things and things like that. So they were also very thankful for that. Yeah. That was a very tough time. Yeah. Uh, like uh you know we had to close for three months and then we could open if we had a plan and Matt helped us like guide us towards make that plan and uh all the other um um uh, procedures that were required for us to be able to reopen again in a safe uh and measuring temperature which was a you know a very important effort as well to make people feel safe and confident to come back and uh yeah would you like to say thank you again already said but man this is uh something i'll never forget to be honest you know what i mean like i think it's very important i really appreciate people when they have um when you do something that you know you go out of your way to help someone and and that that can be forgotten so i can't wait to be able to have the borders open and um, give a gift 
of appreciation to everyone that helped and supported God while we were closed as well. This is a promise that I have, not to people, I did for people, but it's more within myself. So I'm looking forward to that day too. Thank you. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. Um, so, Matt, with um, regards to um, what would you say? Um, I know you do a lot of speeches for uh, motivational speeches for high-level athletes and high-level coaches. And um, what did, what, how did it start? It and um, what are the things that you talked about? Um, you know, what kind of help you can bring to this um, this kind of um, if, with this kind of focus, you know what I mean? Like some athletes, you know, going to maybe Olympic Games, you know, or Mundials, what can you help with that? Sure. So I started with um, applying non-verbal techniques. So a lot of my approach is centered around these, these same techniques and, and, and noticing that we're leaving a lot on the table um, in compared to competitive advantage. Um, there's a lot that's left that, that's untapped and un, unresourced. So, and, and that's, again, a multi-layer effect as well, right? So I started actually working with um, just a Queensland volleyball team, so a Queensland State volleyball team, talking to them about um, not just motivation but understanding mechanics of, of how, not just how your brain works but how your behaviour impacts the way that you perform, um, the way that your brain caches information. So why do people do stupid things at stupid times that they know they're not trained to do? So being able to understand how that caches, how your brain stores information and how you retract information was, was key to that. Um, in terms of motivation, um, motivation is dwindling, but discipline is, 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 is practicable. Um, so when you talk about um, how to motivate elite sports people, that's, that's not really a factor, but getting yeah. to understand the one percenters is key, is key. Not just what, um, what they're doing, but also what's happening on the other side of the court. So I worked with coaches about how they, how they, how they sit, how they act, how they speak, yeah. um, the importance of the words that they say, because words mean things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then about how the team interacts. How can you start to identify those those key vulnerabilities in the opposition and in, in in other teams that you can exploit and also in in your own team so you provide a unified edge um, so that's how I got started and then I started to work with different mindset levels with individual athletes as they move forward and um, most people already know this, this is the dangerous part everyone thinks they're an expert on themselves yeah. so you reach a, a key vulnerability where you tell somebody something and they're oh well, you're not an expert on me I'm the expert on me um, a really good piece of advice that I was given is the expert you, you know is not necessarily the expert you need and that's the gap that I tried to fill. So if you're an expert on you yeah. and you're trying to do some really good growth analysis, then maybe you're not the best person to analyse that. You bring in your third party, yeah. right? Yeah. So the way that you behave is, is, is having a projected effect, whether you know it or not. Yeah. Um, so then we move to the broader spectrum about behavioural analytics um, in the opposition. So what's the opposition doing that is actually giving you key pieces of advice um, on where to attack and where their key vulnerabilities are? Um, and I still do that sort of mentoring now. Okay. For self-development, um, for self-development, it's understanding why your behaviours are happening when they're happening, right? Yeah. And how can I get myself out of those ruts? And 
you do it really well intuitive Anton like so we've spoken about it it's about the perception of data um, so a lot of people say this isn't working for me this tech's not working it's the technique's fault or I'm to blame and then you start to become increasingly internal what am I doing wrong um, why can't I do this I need to get that I need to be able to complete this task um, and it's an internal mechanism What's probably happening, so what I try and do is I try to bring those people back out to the external and that's going to help you perceive what is actually occurring in your whatever your space is. Mm. So um, instead of going this technique or there's something wrong with me, try and rephrase that question to what is it happening in the environment that I'm missing? Yeah. What am I missing that is not allowing what I know is, is good and work, that will work, yeah. to not work, right? So is there pressure on the wrong side? Is the person on the opposite side of the court, are they doing a, a higher jump than you're used to seeing? There's all these multitudes of things that if you stop focusing on what's blaming you inside to what am I missing in, in the environment can have a really marked effect, a huge effect, not just the way that you play the sport, but also the way that you view, you view life itself. Yeah, you take a little bit of the negativity or the sting out of the, the failure, I think. I think a lot of people can be very like that self-deprecating kind of like, oh, I'm the worst. Like, anything that goes wrong, they become very internally destructive and, yeah, it doesn't really lead to doing better performance. So I think, like, that's a good strategy for a lot of people yeah. to kind of, like, go, all right, even though that it is something that they can improve and things like that, they're not being harsh to themselves. They're just trying to put it into perspective, right? What's going on? What's missing? What should yeah. I do better? better? And, and changing and challenging your narrative is key. Yeah. Changing and challenging your own narrative is key. So... What you'll find is that victory is linked to ego, right? Yeah. I'm not saying, and I'm not using ego in, a, in a bad sense. Yeah. I'm using ego as, um, in as, if we're going to talk philosophical, the anima. Who am I as a spirit, like a like a being? So, so victory is linked to ego, and what we tend to do, and and even someone like me, I'm still a victim to it. Yeah. So we're all victims to it. So I start to build these little excuses to then shield me from. Um, the disappointment of losing. Yeah. Um, so let's let's take a let's take it away from jujitsu and talk about. Oh, let's talk about jujitsu, right? Yeah. So, um, um, I, I'm my end state was as I did not compete as well as I thought I was. I was I was trashed in three out of three. Sorry, not trashed, but beaten, right? Yeah. So then I do my my analysis of what happened, and I and then I go well. Um, what was the excuses I told myself about why? I wasn't successful on the way home in the car, which yeah. we do all our greatest thinking, yeah. right? Yeah. Everyone's a champion in Man, the shower. Every, the every training, every training on the way home, that's the same. Oh, stuff I'm, I'm, I'm the best in the world in the shower, right? Because yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, um, I've got all these moves, right? Yeah. Um, so, and then I, you tell yourself these excuses, like my nutrition wasn't great, mm. right? So I didn't, I would have done heaps better if my nutrition was better. I didn't train properly for last week. So yeah, 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 you know, if I, Name and excuse, then, yeah. yeah Whatever excuse it was. And then you do your analysis and you go, well, why, why? Why did this happen? Well, you didn't go to open mat for the last four weeks, which means you were only ever drilling up to the competition, which means you were never pressure testing those techniques that you were going to rely on in a pressured environment. Mm. Um, you didn't prepare the food, even though you knew that worry was there, that, hey, I need to start to prepare my food mm. for this comp day. You didn't, right? So what the mechanic of that is, is that you're actually building in your excuses, yeah. to fit the narrative is that I might lose. And unfortunately, 
these cascading series of events lead you to your own narrative. Yeah, lead to the failure <clears throat> of your own. Yeah, and, and why is that? Um, in, in, in sort of the new sort of conceptual thinking, right, is that a lot of people who really want to succeed will never put themselves into a position where they can fail in the sense that everybody wants to, to win, yeah. but usually winning, and, and you can probably comment way better on this, is to put yourself in a great position to win is also accepting the, the acceptance that that's vulnerable. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's, it's a position to lose yeah. as well. Yeah. So if you've been built, if you self sabotage for the months ahead, you already you already know what's going to happen. You yeah, already yeah. prepared yourself to lose. It's yeah, all right. Yeah. But if you do put yourself out there to do that, it's vulnerable. Like if you go there and you put your best forward, and you still fail, you have to accept that. And I think that's really difficult for everybody. Yeah. And that's the same issues that we have every train. I you know I already trained this morning. Absolutely. Oh, I I had a long day at work. Whatever. Yeah. But. I think the issue with that mentality, particularly from for everybody, is like you, you can't evolve from there. You cannot Absolutely. get any better because you're inbuilt all the time. Everything's inbuilt. Ah, oh, you know, I had this problem. Oh, this problem, this yeah. problem, this problem. And yeah. it makes you feel better for the short term. And I talk a lot about this stuff to do with, you know, differences in size and learning jiu-jitsu and whatever, whatever excuse you have for yourself. At the end of the day, if you adopt that, framework if you adopt that kind of like strategy you're not going to do well in the in the long run you might do okay initially you might get by initially but the longer you stick to that idea or that methodology the worse it's going to get yeah absolutely and that actually um despite what you might think that actually gets worse the better the more technically proficient you become yeah the more the more elite that you become yeah the worse that narrative is right so in, in this instance, let's say you and I were rolling, right? Um, the narrative is that you're going to beat me, mm. right? And you're going to beat me as well. That's the narrative. That's yeah. the narrative that we, we all see. Yeah, yeah. So um, what happens What happens when something doesn't go exactly to plan and I get the upper edge? Or if you're a highly proficient rugby team and you're versing, if you're number one and you're versing number eight and number eight starts to really win, yeah. what what's happening, right? You, you'll get this, what? What the hell just happened? Never, Why is yeah. this occurring? Because the narrative is um, that this isn't supposed to happen. Yeah. And then you start to go down this degrading cycle, yeah. right? So, and the fa- one of the big failure points is where I talk about, especially in elite sports, is that what you've failed to con- perceive is that lower ranking team or that white belt versus the black belt or the, or the yeah. whatever, they're just happy to be in the game still, yeah. right? They don't care about looking pretty. They're yeah. just happy that they're still there. Yeah. Um, and that is a really great driver because necessarily through technique or through through their ignorance of different techniques, they think they're doing great. They've got nothing to lose. Yeah. If they lose, it's the narrative freeing. It's a yeah. very freeing way to approach stuff. Absolutely, because sure. if, if I lose as a white belt, right, that's the narrative. Mm. Who cares? Yeah. If I win, I'm a superhero. I huh? think that's like the story of the underdog always. You Absolutely. Know what I mean? The pressure's always on the champion. The pressure's always on the on the guy that has something to lose. And I don't think that'll ever change. It's, but I agree, like what, you, like what we've talked about with all the fear and all the understanding human behaviour and everything like that, you have to, particularly to do with victory and stuff like that, you do need to get to a point where you, you're not acting on the fear. Like, fear is always going to be present. You're always going to be afraid. You're always going to be vulnerable if you're doing the things we're talking about. You can't change that. And 
you're probably going to find that this is the person that's the underdog that doesn't have much to lose, they're not going to be fearful because they're they do the like best. That. They yeah. will do the Just best a lot easier. Ready to go. Absolutely. So. Yep. But it's a dangerous game as well for the person that's winning and expecting the narrative to go exactly the same way. I think that is that's why a lot of uh, champions don't stay champions for a long time, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because they just get into this comfort zone. I think winning and losing, right, you just have to go back. There's always going to be some piece of the puzzle that it can be improved, you yeah. know what I mean? That can be... Yeah. But it's definitely a hard kind of place to stay in, and that's why it's yeah. so difficult, and that's why you have guys that, you know, whether it's MMA or Jiu-Jitsu or whatever, you have guys that are all the, all the you know, they're recognised as the greatest of all time or some of the greatest of time because they're able to do that. Yeah. They're able to find that spot mentally. They're able to find that, that spot yeah. physically and come back and reproduce all the yeah. time. Yeah. So, so one of those things, right, is that victory is not a goal for them. Victory is an outcome yeah. of the perfection execution. Yeah. Correct. So, so, so when you have your measure from from beginning to to end success, I would say that a lot of those people don't see belts as the measure of success. Yeah. That's just an outcome, yeah. a validating outcome of their perfection of the of the mastery of themselves of that art. and their yeah, art yeah. and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then obviously all the planning that that comes around that. So. Um, one person, I had a person um, come and, and work with me and, and I said, then what, what's your goal? And I'm like, I want, I want a gold medal, yeah. right? Not I want to be the best at X sport, I want a gold medal. So my advice to them was to stop what the sport they're doing as they're in a highly competitive sport, go out and find a sport that no one competes in, right? And that raises your measure of success and you're probably going to get a gold medal. So if that's your goal, you need to suit, suit your, your yeah. vehicle to the goal. Yeah. But if you want to be great at jujitsu, right? It's a it's a master journey, and your victories, your your no. awards, your medals—they're they're outcomes. Yeah. They're, they're sort of byproducts of successful application. And if you can keep that, then every failure is an opportunity to growth. Because if you fail, it shows you where a weakness is, and a weakness can be addressed. Right? I always said that like yeah, yeah. you you lose more from your when you get uh, defeated than when you actually win. Win. You see a lot of things to improve. You go back. Look, I think there are. Um, it's super hard to keep yourself when you become a champion. Like, um, and also uh, because people think, oh yeah, I'm great, I'm perfect. I don't need to work nothing. That was easy, you know what I mean. And then they're not perfecting for the next one. Um, but it's also after many years doing the same craft. And I think there's a lot of these guys. They just the meaning of how they started changed, you know. Mm. And and by changing the meaning of what they started is much harder. To then go back and address and improve on that pieces of the puzzle they have to, you know. Yeah, because there's a there's an overflowing thing of winners, right? Because winners are just losers who just try one more time yeah. and they're successful. They just had to get up that one more time, and eventually, eventually, they're going to get there. Yeah. Um, and that's really hard if you're at the pinnacle to, to maintain because you've got all these guys who are driven. Yeah. Um, and yeah. you need to maintain and drive and grow and you have to be the same amount of driven but you're waking up with you know fresh fruit platters and all this stuff exactly these guys right. are fighting <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. so it's, it's different it's and different, you're being yeah. hunted yeah, yeah. because you're the measure right yeah. so they're probably using you it's as the measure yeah. for their for their um, for their mastery yeah yeah. yeah so it's, a, it's interesting. an interesting dynamic yeah. it's a very interesting yeah, dynamic interesting. Um, we'll, we'll just look at like one last point we'll talk about jiu-jitsu a little bit more again and that was a really really in, like interesting kind of subject but um we just wanted to kind of get your um 
perspective on like um, BJJ in the military and, and how it's used and like your experience with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu within the military because we've worked with some other military groups whether it was for some mental health stuff or PTSD and things like that um, but also Eduardo's worked before um, with the military just going over and doing combative type training with them and stuff like that so what are your ideas or what's your experience with um, kind of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu within the kind of military sector? Sure, sure. Um, the way I'd sort of like to attack this one, because yeah. this, is a, this is a great question, yeah. um, and it's a challenging question, but the way I'd sort of like to attack this one is through um, the concepts of, of unarmed combat in a law enforcement and military status from that higher level, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. That's so um, when you look at unarmed combat in a military context or a law enforcement context or a security context, so, so what is that eventuality? So, so what has occurred where now unarmed combat is your only option? Maybe different for security because you have no other real processes, but in, in a law enforcement perspective, in a military perspective, what you're looking at is a series of failures. Yeah. You know, there are a, a variety of defensive mechanisms and space, um, space buying mechanisms that have actually failed. And now whatever combatant that is there, whether it's a belligerent or, or it's an emergency response, they're now on you. So that is a, a truly stressful environment yeah. because, and there's two applications for this. And one is the mastery of techniques and the being comfortable, being comfortable with being uncomfortable. And then is the, then it's the, what we call the gnashing intent of what is occurring. And I'll talk about those separately if that's okay. Yeah, that's um, so if all your mechanisms have failed and now you have someone who is on you, you are going to be highly stressed. Highly, highly stressed. To have someone who grabs you in the law enforcement or military context is your worst possible outcome. That is the one thing that you do not want to do. You do not want to have happen to you. Yeah. Worse than that is finding yourself on the ground, yeah. right? Because if you look at the way that um, police or law enforcement outfits have, the way you look at militaries dress for a combat environment, they're heavy, they're, they're cumbersome. So... Getting to the ground is actually not what you, where you want to be. You yeah. want to be up where you have access to all your tools, whatever those tools may be. Yeah. Um, if you've grabbed me, that yeah. means all those mechanisms have failed or you've surprised me. Yeah. Neither of them are good situations. So, so for all those stuff we've already talked about, about the benefits of BJJ um, and jiu-jitsu so jiu is that you have to learn to be comfortable with being in really uncomfortable positions. Yeah. And... And training, real training, um, it pressurizes that that mechanism. So, you know, I just got to get my arm here. I'm not out of the fight yet. I can work myself around. Um, that's the mentality side that jujitsu gives you. Yeah. The other thing that it gives you is the technique. So, the understanding of the conceptual application of different maneuvers. Yeah. Sure, the maneuvers for those environments may be different, but where it draws comparison to jujitsu is that you guys understand the dynamics of ground combat really, really well, you're right? So yeah. the, the mechanisms of movement, what works, what doesn't work, how do I position myself for the greatest outcome? Yeah. Pressure testing that in a, in a gym scenario allows you to, it give, gives you confidence that you can actually start to apply these skills in whatever environment you see you in, right? Yeah. So that's, I think that's key for, for what benefits, what benefits jujitsu bring to, to, to that environment understanding at a higher level the dynamics of human um, manoeuvre in, in really high-stress environments. That's key. Yeah. Um, 
And when you look at the, the health benefits of that, I think we've sort of gone over that. Yeah. You know, you, you're never out of the fight in jiu-jitsu, so you're really out. Yeah. Um, and those little tiny improvements of your position, you can you can manifest into getting out. You can mm. manifest into a into a winning scenario. Yeah. Um, being comfortable with someone on top of you, which is never great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even it, from an inferior position, you can be offensive. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Or it gives me confidence. So if I ended up on my back mm. in shock, um, I, I have that ability to to turn that around. Yeah. So. And that's in jiu-jitsu, like, start on the top, you land on the bottom badly, right? Now I can start to do my maneuver. That's a really uh, good thing. So when we look at the flight, the freeze, fight, and flight response, everyone will freeze. This whole notion that you will either do one of each is, is completely incorrect. Everyone will freeze. Why? Because the mammalian brain needs to take in information. Your survivability is directly proportional to your conversion from the freeze response into an action. Okay. Whether that be flight or fight, doesn't matter. It needs to be suitable for the environment. But your conversion rate from the fear response into an actionable behavior is where you get that advantage. You're probably not going to be able to train that holistically continually if you're outside of a gym, yeah. right? And then, so the, the, the caveat I'll have to that, the caveat I'll have to that, um, if, we, if I talk really simplistically and I apologise to any sort of economists out there who may be listening, um, the national equilibrium of, of game theory, um, the only sort of the key drawback to just practising sport is that we, you and I, when we go into a ring, when we go into a competition, where we're behaving in a, in a particular outcome, which is neither of us want to kill each other. Yeah. Right? Neither of us want to kill each other. We both want to go home at the end of the day. Um, what, what we found in a lot of the people who are, are purists... And you'll see stories come up like jiu-jitsu champion uh, lost in a street fight or killed in a one-punch attack or all this sort of stuff. The failure point is, is that we, um, we train for a particular reaction. Yeah. Um, you need to be aware, so you need to supplement your training for video day in those environments to high-fidelity training where you can take some of those regulations off, where tapping is no longer going to work. You have to do it safely. Yeah. But you, when you change that context, when you know that, the game's not going to stop when you tap. Yeah, yeah. Um, it does change the dynamic, yeah. but the foundation's the same. The foundation's exactly yeah. the same. Um, and then you concentrate on, obviously, like if, if I'm wearing a whole lot of rig, I'm not going to go for your legs because I can still access all my tools and that sort of thing. So, yeah, key difference, but the understanding mechanics is fundamental. Being, being comfortable with working your way out of inferior positions, yeah. um, converting... Uh, f- the freeze response into an actionable behaviour is where this really comes into the fore. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, it's definitely... It definitely changes the game. Um, and, it, and like we said before, the whole way of proficiency versus competency, or sorry, you learn a skill and you go, well, I've already done this, right? Yeah. Um, that no longer works down on the mat, right? <clears throat> so in an active life, if you're if, sort of in a, in a check... Um, a checkbox way of training, you know, I've done this iteration and this iteration and now I'm qualified, <laughs> um, it doesn't necessarily mean proficiency, right? Yeah, yeah. So you've taught me a lot of stuff and I'm, I'm definitely not and we've done a lot of stuff together and that doesn't make me proficient. Yeah. It continued practice does. Yeah. Always um, room for improvement. Absolutely, right? Yeah, but just even if you stop, if you stop doing that activity, you, yeah. your level decreases. Like you might have the knowledge there, you might have all the stuff we've talked about, you might have all the conceptual ideas, but there, there's 
like we talked about with the recipe, if you're not doing it all the time, you forget things, you forget yeah. steps, you miss place situations, you, you, you timing, make mistakes. Decision-making process. Decision -making. Yeah. All the stuff we've talked about. So, so yeah. if I could pose a question, if that's sure. okay. So I'll pose a question back, right? So when we, we talk Please. about this stuff, in your opinion, right, would, would jiu-jitsu be as effective if we remove the open mat concept? Uh, like, do you mean just sparring in general? Do you so, mean rolling? Yeah, like, so if, you, if yeah. we no longer did open mat events. You yeah. mean open mat as also like uh, any type of training that we have at every class, like yeah, yeah, sparring, free free sparring, training, you yeah, say, yeah, right? Free yeah, no, it wouldn't No, be. no way. And uh, we've talked about that, and I talked about this on another podcast before, and what are the roots of every martial art? It's extreme violence. It all comes from war. So if you have a look at Muay Thai, that's where they came from. If you have a look at Judo, that's where they came from with the samurai and stuff like that. And Jiu-Jitsu kind of similar in Brazil with, you know, a lot of guys fighting in the street and street gangs and blah, blah, blah. It all starts from there. And that's the only reason it's effective. It all starts from extreme violence. And you're right. And, and the thing is that happens with all martial arts. The more you remove that live situation, the more you remove... Um, you know, the realistic reaction and, and the live sparring and all this stuff, the more word, watered down it becomes and the less effective it becomes. And the more McDojo type you're talking about where we're now doing chi energy blasts to knock people out and, <laughs> and defeat 20 assailants. Like, um, those guys don't spar. They, you know, do a reenactment of what would happen or how it's working. And, and some of them actually believe in that, which is, you know, their choice. But... I think you're absolutely right. If you remove the real part, the physical real part of any martial art, it will become less and less and less effective. And I think jiu-jitsu has an extra factor, right? You can go to a, a Muay Thai gym or a yeah. boxing gym. You're going to train there for one year. Even a great Muay Thai gym, probably you're not going to get knocked out yeah. in this year, yeah. okay? So in a jiu-jitsu gym, probably, right, Unless you're like world elite level, you know what I mean? And then there's not many people like you in the in a, in a world, you know, in, in Australia. But most probably, for like a normal jiu-jitsu practitioner, you're going to tap every gonna, day, yeah, every, every session. Every session. Yeah. Every session yeah. Multiple right? times. Yeah. Multiple times, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that will make you um, straight away, that will make you more resilient straight away, you know, because you have to think about what happened and come back again straight away. And more hum humbling as well. So that helps the equation of also like, okay, um, the theory, I need the practice to go back to the theory, exactly what did the reason you actually started training maybe, yeah. perhaps, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but for sure, if, if you remove the like the, the live re reactive part of it, the, the, the essence of what it is physically, you, you can't continue to improve. Like yeah. we talked about at the start. You do need a component of the physical. You do need a component of the theory, the understanding, the mental, and you have to find a combination of them to find a balance of something that continually improves. And I think that's something that you can apply for yourself as well. Like yeah. you're only going to improve as a human being if if you if you put it into practice and you think about it and analyze it and all of the above. You can't have one without the other because it's really easy to talk about how you can stop arguing with your girlfriend or your wife or your mum or whatever, but then when it actually goes to happening, nothing changes. You, know yeah. what I mean? you now have to apply all that understanding or whether it's cooking or baking or whatever. You know yeah, what and that, that's, a, that's a really core, uh, a really core value, right? So I think um, one of the great things about jiu-jitsu especially is the explorative nature of, of yeah. open mat. Yeah. Um, 
ways and drilling, right? So you're never going to come up with the same thing the same time every time. It's just not going to work. And judicial jujitsu provides a great vehicle to explore that. For sure, um, it's very creative. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when you when you talk about like sort of the practice, that's a really another really great thing. So a lot of the things we talk about in pressurization is this thing called retrospective analysis, yeah. where I'll teach you a lesson, you go off and you do it, you've done, you've had a failure point, and then you evaluate at the end. That's not really great. You need to learn while doing so you can actually build those neural pathways in the threat environment that you're in. Right. So um, whether that be in arguments or on the mat or, or wherever you are, you know, in a bus looking for, for threat dynamics, right, you're practicing that. You can't just read a book about, oh, I'm looking for this, close the book, get robbed, come back and like, oh, I didn't do this, <laughs> this, this, this yeah, and this, yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Well done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're fast. Um, yeah, so you, you're actually practicing that continuously. Um, yeah. I, I think that's increasingly difficult, though, for sure, to do it in real time. That's probably one of the most yeah. difficult things to do. It's so difficult to be in the moment aware, making decisions and, like, actually applying the stuff that you know. That's one of the most difficult yeah. things. That... And you even have to be, like, cool and kind to yourself when something didn't go your way. Oh, for sure, yeah. Take jujitsu as an example because that's the best way for you to actually uh, be able to see what went wrong because a lot of people they don't even have the capacity to they get angry they get they, they get f- bad feelings about themselves oh I'm terrible mm-hmm. and they cannot review what went wrong so how they actually can address and improve you know what I mean yeah. they're shutting the curtains for them to improve you know yeah so a key one of the key things that people can take away when they do that sort of stuff is um, instead of going what failed what did I do wrong is what did I learn today I learned today that if I move this particular way with my... It doesn't work. It doesn't yeah, work, yeah, right? So sure. that's something that I can action immediately. Yeah. I'm no longer going to move to the left when this person's moving to the right. So you can change the narrative to make it constructive. Yeah. And that's a really sort of key takeaway. Because um, sometimes it's just a detail and you address the detail and then you're going to be able yeah. to perform. Yeah, yeah. How, do you, how do you get people into that habit? If they, if they find themselves always falling into this kind of like more negative narrative, how do you, how do, is it just simply practicing it and getting more comfortable doing that or like reinforcing that kind of thing? So negativity in your mind is, is addictive. Yeah. And it's, and it's really compounding. If you find yourself, like if you find yourself um, falling into that trap, the easiest way is to write it down. Like, yeah. What are the three wins I had today, right? And then what are the three... So um, you can use this system called the after-action review, which is yeah. what can I fix immediately? What, yeah. what failed for me completely? Okay, so I, um, I got caught because I extended my arm. Okay, so the fix for that is I'm no longer going to extend my arm when someone's got, got me in a particular position, mood. Yeah. That's my fix, right? And your brain goes, okay, that's something we can action straight away. Um, so write down. Don't but how write... about the people that... Matt, but how about the people that are actually not even... Uh, capable to feel accountable they just they they they, they will they're not going to see uh, they're not going to take that lesson they just yep. go no 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 i did great and no 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 it's everything it's never their fault it's always i think something. they're going to have a very it's a tough one right yeah so if you want to invest into someone like that so if you're a coach you shouldn't invest on them <laughs> that's the truth I mean, oh yeah yeah so it's difficult right? it's hitting so, a door with your head not yeah, even yeah. with your arm um, but you will be able to know whether you can make some breakthroughs by sitting. If you sat down to me and go, what did you do wrong to I'm like, oh, nothing. You're like, really? How many years for you to just let the environment take over and uh-huh. you, <laughs> and you go, I can't help? You yeah, know? yeah, so... Um, Eight years? 
that, that's a judgment call, right? So that's definitely a judgment. And look, and you're absolutely right. There are people who will never admit their own failures, and usually that that means that their ego is actually in control, because for growth, you're the sculptor and the clay. So to make a perfect, to make a perfect, if you want to make a statue of David from a bunch of clay, but you're making it out of your own body. It requires that you have to knock stuff off. That's going to hurt, mm. right? If you view the clay as ego, sure. to, to get what you envisage you want to be, you need to create friction. You need to face yeah. some hard truths. Yeah. That's not as easy as being said, right? True. No, it no. takes a level of maturity. True, so, um, true. But if people are serious about that, again, um, they can train that. It does not like going from complete denial to enlightenment. Just admit one thing yeah, that you can improve steps, on. Yeah, baby steps, baby steps. Yeah, yeah true. Just, a, just a journey. It's a journey like any other journey, like rehabilitation. Like if you break your leg, you don't go from broken leg, six weeks healed, now I'm going to run a marathon or whatever. I'm mm. going to do heavy squats. It's I need to do my rehab. Mm. This is like prehab. How do I prevent this from having to occur to me? Mm. Potentially. Yeah. Yeah. Matt, just uh, final thoughts. I would like you to say to someone, there's a lot of, jiu-jitsu is growing a lot in Australia. Yep. Um, and I think it's going to be growing like exponentially. Uh, and a lot of people from other martial arts, um, Australia had a background in karate, Muay Thai. Queensland is considered the capital of Muay Thai back yeah. in the day. See, I know my things. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I was wondering, like, if you, what could you say, right, to someone that is like at any age, but you see a lot more people, like, you know, in their 40s, 50s, they're like, you know what, I'm going to give it a go in jiu-jitsu. And, and what do you, but I'd be hesitant or not to show if it will fit in or what would you tell to someone that like never done before, but perhaps is interested to give it a go? What would be your, your saying? So I would say that, I'd say this to them. If they've had a thought that they, they want to do something, they should action that thought. They should action that thought because committing to going, I want to do that, just like I want to go and join a gym, but then they, they, the fear takes over. Mm. Um, you've had the thought, so that means it's a driver for you. You actually want to do it. So embrace that embrace that thought pattern. Um, don't let your ego get in the way of doing something that's going to be achievable because your ego will try and protect you. Most people know that when they're um, before they start, they're not going to do particularly well. Mm. Most people know that, and that that prevents so many people from actually starting a journey. Um, and it is a journey, right? The journey from white belt to black belt is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And it takes, and you can learn so much more of it than just a technical skill. So if you've had the thought, you're, you're already halfway committed. Getting to the gym is three quarters of the commitment. But once you're there, um, accept it for what it is. This is a journey for me. And also realize that there's, in, in, most people will be there to support you. Um, the other part is, is don't think of how people judge you. I know that's really hard. Most people think about their ego as what does other people think of me? <laughs> and, the, and the most, and like when I'm losing on the mat, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking about... This is was, funny because when I'm a coach now, maybe I had this thought when I was training back on the day a little bit. And now that I'm a coach, I look like, Man, the last thing I'm doing now is thinking about you when you're training. Like, we don't have that exactly. but at even, all. Even everyone else in the gym, they're, they're, they're thinking about their own survival. They're just trying to get by themselves. <laughs> like, everybody's doing the same thing. You know what I mean, that's like, I agree. I think that's one of the most common fears is like, oh, everyone thinks I'm this. Or, you know, I, I came on the mat with shoes. Oh, I'm, I'm going to be embarrassed. I'm going to leave. I'm not going to come back next week or whatever. Man, nobody remembers. 
I've listened to other podcasts where they talk about that. Yeah. Where a guy, his first class, he tied his white belt, he was standing up front with the black belts. Yeah. Like they're like a complete idiot, didn't know what was going on. And they just go, oh man, just come back over here, the white belt. But for him, he thinks like, man, everyone thinks I'm an idiot. I've been standing there, blah, 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 blah. That was my first day at jujitsu. It's like, even though it was super uncomfortable, now I'm a, you know, perfect belt or whatever. I was so glad that I didn't stop. So glad to So, And if I ask anybody else about that day, they don't even remember. They have no clue what happened. But for him, it was so powerful. Because the judgment thoughts that you have are actually your own construction. Yeah. It's not what you're thinking about me. It's what I'm thinking you're thinking about me. <laughs> Which is a paradoxical kind of Exactly, situation, right? Yeah. Because unless I ask you, and you, you no tell me, that yeah. you, you're making this up and you're buying yeah. into this narrative. Yeah. One of the most liberating things is to be absolutely walloped on a mat. Go sit down on the bench where there's all the other people and you realise that no one, no one actually cares, right? Yeah. The stories that you've told yourself is exactly that, a story that you've made up um, for your own ego. Mm. And when you're actually a beginner, uh, you know, I started Pilates not long ago, uh, you have no pressure whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, I didn't even know the name of, like, they, they tell things to do. I don't even know. I love to myself, you know what I mean? Like, like a completely raw beginner is too asking questions. And, and I don't want to have any uh, ideals of, like, getting amazingly well. I just want to know the base. If I get good base, I'm fine. I'm happy days. You know? Exactly, right? So if you've had the thought, action the thought and mm. follow it through. Um, and, and interject when you're having those negative thoughts. Because if you can just remember that the thoughts on... Because the, the, everyone doesn't like to be judged, yeah. right? So that's, the, that's our fear. We're being judged by someone. That's exactly what you're saying. But if you, if you can catch yourself and go, well, I actually don't know what Anton's thinking. I'm judging because, myself right now. Yeah, so yeah. I'm making up what he's actually thinking about yeah. me because I don't know. Yeah. If you can just acknowledge that, and stick with it a few times, you'll realize and you'll end that great sense of community. It's not so bad, yeah. Exactly, right? And, and like you said perfectly, yeah. everyone's too busy trying to survive themselves. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, we don't even have mirrors. That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, the stories we tell ourselves is probably our biggest inhibitor. Yeah. Cool. Absolutely. That's cool. pretty much it. Absolutely. Poor Matthew, um, I think it was an absolutely pleasure. It was awesome. A lot of the words that you... Um, sink into my brain so I'm gonna try to evolve with those words I appreciate it that you're coming today giving the time for us again I appreciate you a lot your help your teamwork uh, friendship teamwork help through the tough times that's when you know when uh, people that are, you can count with um, super pleasure to have you here in our, t- in our team super pleasure to have as a friend pleasure to have uh, Eva and uh, Bronte with us as well. Yeah. We can clearly see that smile. Uh, it's the we, we we can feel and see when someone when Sakiro Adult is super king, you know what I mean? And it's easy on them. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you very much. much. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thank really you. awesome.